Tonight, Jesus embraces children and even says that if we don't embrace the kingdom of God like a child, we will not enter it. Now, as you can imagine, society was, well, a little different back then, and even the view of children was different. Now, the Greek word for child was techna, and that encompassed the whole range of someone who was younger than an adult. Now, the developmental stage of how we define childhood really is a modern phenomenon. And it wasn't until the modern era in history that we developed the science of psychology and defined the life developmental stages. So our fascination and appreciation, especially of children, is relatively new and was not part of the culture back in Jesus' time. In fact, Jesus were viewed as the least of these in society. And that's why it was actually shocking to see Jesus embrace children. Now, children were also given the role to obey their parents and also to learn the skill of their parents. Now, you might think that, hey, that's the job of a teenager, but in the Bible, there was no word for teenager. There was simply child and adult and nothing in between. It wasn't until the early 1900s that psychologists defined the term adolescence, and even back then, it was the ages between 14 and 16. Since then, adolescence, of course, has expanded from, say, 11 to, well, even the mid-20s. And speaking of that, by 14 or 16 in Jesus' day, you were considered to be a grown adult. And so when the disciples paid the temple tax, which is for ages 20 and older, only Jesus and Peter paid the temple tax, which means that all of the disciples were under the age of 20, except for Peter. Isn't that crazy? So what did... So what did Jesus mean that we need to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, from this we can gather that the kingdom of God is offered to everyone, including the least of these. But I'm sure it also has to do with obedience, since that was the child's job back then. Or at the very least, children even today have this ability to trust their parents and rely on them, unlike adults who become more dependent. So maybe it's this trust that Jesus is talking about. So there you go. A little bit about children, and that's enough today for our historical minute. All right, well, let's begin in prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank you for gathering us together here on this Father's Day where we get to come in your house and we get to worship you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we dive into Mark 10, just, Lord, we pray that we're able to uh, really learn a lot tonight and grow closer to you. And all this we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, thank you guys for last week. And I open with that because... Our high school group, we were in uh, Southern California in the San Bernardino Mountains, and the high it got was like 80 degrees. And so life was just tough. It was tough last week. Uh, actually, I was surprised at how sunburned I got. I don't know what the deal is with that. I did put on some sunscreen, but, but even at 80 degrees, apparently you can get sunburned. Who knew? So we had a really good time last week, and so if you were here last week, uh, we actually did it as a video, and so uh, just thank you guys for your patience, and as well, I did promise, I said that, hey, if you um, hear something and you want to text in a question that we'll address it the following week, so that's actually the first thing we're going to do is we have coming out of Mark 10, Mark 10 begins with Jesus teaching about divorce, and as I had mentioned in the video, when we've talked about it in Matthew, uh, we just had lots of questions. And so this time around, we do have one question. But when Jesus is talking about divorce, really, he's, he's not just talking about divorce. He's talking about marriage. And he's talking about what God's plan for marriage is. And he even quotes all the way back to the garden. He quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 about how God made the male and female and how God... Um, 
And therefore the male and female, um, the man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. And he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so really whenever we talk about this, this area of marriage, uh, it's something that, that is a spiritual act. It is uh, not just a sheet of paper. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he said that, oh, marriage is just a sheet of paper. Well, you know, the state of Arizona doesn't think so, uh, because there's a lot of papers to get a divorce, but it's more than just a sheet of paper. And for God, as well, marriage is not just a sheet of paper. What God has joined together, let no man separate. All right, and so what, uh, what Jesus is, is affirming here, he's talking about the permanency of marriage. And he's, he's really talking about in um, you know, the garden, in the perfect world, here's what, here's what marriage is. Now, unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a broken world. And so um, all the way back to Deuteronomy 24, Moses even talks about how if um, someone is unfaithful in the marriage, and so if, if there's adultery in the marriage, then God actually does give that out. God actually does uh, make it permissible then to file for divorce. But it should not be in a way that's like, yes, they cheated on me, now I get out, okay? Um, in fact, that's kind of what some of the people had acted like back then. And so what Jesus was, was affirming, he said that, that, and he even said this, he said that the, the whole reason why someone would divorce someone, even with adultery, is, is just because our hearts are hardened. And talking about how uh, we just can't get to a place of, of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so, so uh, Jesus does affirm the, um, the ability to file for divorce on the grounds of adultery, but it's also just kind of at a lamenting, just kind of, yeah, it's also out of hardness of hearts. And so the question came up, and which we'll address here is, please explain divorce in the case of physical and verbal abuse. And absolutely, it's such a great question. I'm, I'm glad whoever asked it, I'm glad that they did, because it gives us a chance to talk about this. It gives us uh, a chance to clarify what the Bible has to say about this. And so, so ultimately what we find in Scripture is that we do find uh, the out for adultery. And so there must be something about adultery in marriage that just really, um, that just really breaks the covenant, just really breaks the, the vows that we have at marriage. And it's just something that's very hard to repair. Not impossible, not impossible, but just very difficult to repair. And so, so that's why I think God gives us that out. Um, it does not say in Scripture, however, that in the case of uh, verbal or physical abuse, that that's also grounds for divorce. But hear me say this, that even though that that's true, hear me say this, all right? And I, and I want everyone to hear this and not just gloss over it. But it's that, um, that if you are in a situation like that, then it's, it's not okay to stay in that situation. Uh, it is not okay to continue to be victimized in that way or abused in that way. And so, so for sure what, what we can encourage is a couple things. Number one is that, you know, if it's just a philosophical question, oh, what about, what about abuse? That's one thing. But if you're really in that situation, then I encourage you to seek therapy. I encourage you to seek counseling um, because 
because this is going to be a very hard situation. So seek uh, therapy and then as well to seek spiritual counsel. So uh, Pastor Mike or um, since he's out for sabbatical, I'd be glad to talk or Pastor Wayne's around um, and he's much smarter than I. He's Reverend Dr. Wayne Wilkie. Or he's got a PhD. He's a very smart guy. So uh, he can talk to you as well. But but if you're in that situation, then, then speak uh, then seek spiritual counsel as well to, to really navigate those waters. But for sure, seek separation as well. If, if that's what it comes to, then uh, it's so much better to be in a shelter someplace or to um, just move <laughs> and just not disclose your location. Or you can even do what's called a legal separation. Like you could be legally not divorced, but legally separated from someone. And that even cuts off their ability to spend out of bank accounts and things of that nature. And so, so for sure, um, in the areas of abuse, don't just continue to be abused. Um, you can definitely, there are alternatives out there. But, but the main thing that I would uh, talk about here is, is to get counsel, to get spiritual counsel. So thank you so much for that question. I really appreciate it. Uh, so that's Jesus' teachings on divorce. And then we come out of that. And now we're going to go into what I talked about in the historical minute. Let the children come to me. So we're in Mark 10, verse 13. And here's what it says. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So why did the disciples rebuke them? Because the children were the least of these. They were, they were nobodies. They didn't have any skills. Uh, they were just kind of annoying. <laughs> okay, and that's really how children were viewed back then. Really, this, this um, appreciation and fascination of children in our culture is, is relatively new. Children back in Jesus' day, not saying it was good, not saying it was right, but I'm saying that in Jesus' day, children were viewed as very much kind of like bottom of society. What good are they? And so, but what happens is they come to Jesus, the disciples are like, uh-uh, uh-uh. But here's what Jesus says in verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. And not only that, but then it goes on to verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so really whenever you think about a child and just how they have this, this trust. And, and really, see, that's the thing. A child only knows that, only knows their parents. And, and they have to rely on them in order to survive. They are, they are dependent on their parents. Uh, see, as we grow older, we become more and more independent. And we, uh, well, in theory at least, right, we become more and more independent. And, and we can start to do things on our own. And so we start to um, take cr credit for things on our own. But whenever we're kids, it's like we, we, we have to. We, we don't have jobs. We, we don't have debit cards to go to the grocery store. We have to rely entirely on our parents. And that's what Jesus, I think, is talking about here, is that this childlike faith, if you will, is to receive the kingdom of God like a child does. And so Jesus here, all throughout his ministry, is constantly flipping upside down the social status, the social ladder, where everyone believes here's so-and-so on top, here's so-and-so on the bottom. And Jesus is constantly flipping those. And one of the ways he flips it here is that he affirms children. He receives children. And then in verse 10, 16, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, 
laying his hands on them. So just this affirming, blessing, receiving children. And then we go into this story. Now this one, if you've been around church, maybe you've heard before, but it's such an interesting and important uh, story. So here we go. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Inherit eternal life. So it's interesting that he's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as Christians today, now we have the full story, right? We've got Genesis through Revelation. We have the story of Jesus on the cross. We have even what it means that Jesus is on the cross and throughout the New Testament. And so as Christians today, we might look at this and say, what do you mean, what must you do to inherit life? Well, actually nothing. There's actually nothing you can do to inherit eternal life because eternal life salvation is a gift given to us by God. And so it's nothing that we can earn, nothing that that we can do on our own, but rather it's a gift given to us. So as Christians today, that's how we would respond. And that's a good response. But Jesus doesn't give that response. Are you ready for this? See, Jesus, he knows this guy's heart. So he's going to play with him a little bit. So check this out. Here's what Jesus says. First of all, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's kind of funny because we know that Jesus is God. But then in verse 19, you know the commandments, Ten Commandments, if you're here on Sunday morning, the Ten Commandments series. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So it's interesting that that Jesus here is talking about the law. And he says, well, the law. And that's how he's responding because here's, he knows how this guy's going to respond. He knows how this guy thinks. And so what he's going to do, he's going to take how this guy thinks and acts, and he's just going to shatter that completely. Are you ready? Verse 20. And he, the rich young ruler, said to Jesus, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. <laughs> now, I find this funny because, man, okay, like guys, we've all had our moments, okay, where, where we've said things and then later regret them and kind of want to put our foot in our mouth. But can you imagine standing in front of a holy God, in front of Jesus Christ himself, and whenever Jesus is giving us the Ten Commandments, we say, oh, yeah, I followed those perfectly. Can you imagine? Do not murder Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. You mean to tell me you have never once broken any of those? And especially given how Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, actually, he not only upholds the Ten Commandments, but he actually expands the implication of the Ten Commandments. And so he's saying that that even for do not murder, it's not just about like taking the life of a person. But it's also uh, about how we can use words that tear people down. And, and that's murder in your heart. If you look at a woman lustfully, that's adultery in your heart. And, and so for Jesus especially, who has expounded upon the implications of the Ten Commandments, for this man to stand in front of Jesus and for him to look at Jesus square in the eye and say, I have followed the law perfectly. I have never once sinned. That's what this guy is saying. 
And again, Jesus, rather than just combat him and say, well, actually you did sin. And, you know, that's the thing. Jesus could have gone through all of the times that he sinned. He could have. He could have stood right there and done it. But you see, this is, Jesus is getting to this guy's heart. And he's shattering his expectations. Here's what he says in verse 21. You, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. See, I, I, I love this part of Scripture that, that when Jesus looks at him, he's going to say these things out of love. Sometimes whenever we have hard conversations with people, sometimes people think, oh, well, they're doing it just out of a motivation of being self-righteous or judgmental or looking down on me. And, and sometimes people do that, I'm sure. But as Christians, we're called to have hard conversations out of love. And so if you truly love somebody, you're going to say something. And so Jesus, he loved him. And here's what he said. He said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. So rather than trying to enter this game that this guy has created for himself about, well, there was that one time when you were seven, and you didn't honor your mother and father when you said that. Rather than try to enter into that, he just looks right into this guy's heart and recognizes that out of everything going on in this guy's heart, there's something that's, that's preventing him from following Jesus. And this thing has a vice on him. This thing has a grip on him. And so Jesus knows this. And see, that's the cool thing about Jesus. He can just look at someone, he just knows it. And he can cut right to the issue, cut right to the heart. Here's this thing that is preventing him, is that he wants, he wants him to give up his possessions. So there, there's something about this guy, that he, he's rich, and he's young, and he's a ruler. So we have all those things. He's a ruler of some sort. He has some sort of political power. But for him, it's the stuff. It's the material things that he's gotten really attached to. And by the way, raise your hand if you can relate to that. I certainly can, <laughs> all right? I mean, I've cried over, like, breaking uh, a piece of plastic in my life, okay? I, to imagine, or, or whenever you wreck a car, you're just looking at your car totaled, you're crying, right? We all love stuff. We are in America in the 21st century. We love stuff. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Can't get enough of it. But for this guy... And there's something about stuff for him. There's something about his materials, his possessions. And Jesus is calling him to go, to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor. And, and then, speaking of treasure, you're going to have it in heaven. If you do this, you're going to have lots of treasures in heaven. So it's almost, a, it's almost a compromise. Hey, you know, give up the stuff for the next, you know, 50 years of your life. And then you're going to have lots of stuff for all of eternity. And that's the perspective that Jesus has. But here's, here's what he says in verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't do it. The calling of Jesus was to sell everything. And for him, he just looked at that and said, whoa, whoa. I mean, the cost of following Jesus, if it's, if it's convenient, I'm there. If it's slightly inconvenient, I'm on the fence. But if it's really inconvenient, no way, Jose, I'm out. I'm out. And he walked away disheartened 
sorrowful because he, he had great possessions. He just, he couldn't do it. Now notice as well that really throughout all the Bible, Jesus only gives this command to this guy. He doesn't give the command to the rest of his disciples. He doesn't give it to Herod or he doesn't give it to Pilate. He doesn't give it to anyone else, but he does give it to this guy. And the reason for this is that this is not a universal commandment. I've heard some people say that. I've heard some people, uh, this for sure would fall in line with like a monastery uh, or like a poor as piety kind of a thing um, where, where people would say that Jesus is calling us to go and sell everything that we have and give it to the poor because that's a universal commandment. But Jesus, in the Bible at least, he doesn't give that commandment to everyone. In fact, he only gives it to this guy. And why does he only give it to this guy? Because that's where this guy's heart was at. That was the one thing that was preventing him from following Jesus, and Jesus knew it, and Jesus went right after it. So then it says in 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And so, now I've heard this verse preached as like rich people are bad and everyone's like yeah yeah rich people are bad it's not just that rich people are bad i don't think this is exactly what jesus is saying here what jesus is saying here is that see again he's flipping upside down the social order and back then they thought that if you were rich you were blessed by god and that you had some sort of superiority spiritually over other people and so it's this thought that that man a rich person they're definitely going to enter heaven because i mean look at them they've accumulated all this wealth i mean they are blessed by god they are approved by god man they got it going on of all people they're the ones who are going to get in heaven and so that's kind of how they thought back then but jesus is reversing this jesus is saying no actually uh, even if you have accumulated all this wealth it's still not good enough to get into heaven There's nothing you can do that's going to impress God. That God's going to say, oh, wow, on your own merit. Now, let me open the gates of heaven. Come on in. On your own merit, there's nothing you can do. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And then in verse uh, 24, And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, it's interesting how he calls them children, How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All right, I'm going to talk about that in a second, but first let's finish this section. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are impossible with God. So let's just kind of break down the section here, what, what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. Now, i got to tell you that growing up, uh, I've heard a lot of people preach on this and talk about this. And, and uh, one of the things that, that I heard as a kid growing up was this that Jesus here is not talking about literally like the eye of a needle. So if we picture, you know, for those of you who sew, you know, we have like the eye of a needle is like, right? Or like, okay. Um, They're not, 
what I was told was Jesus was not necessarily talking about that kind of eye of a needle, like a large camel, eye of a needle, small hole, but rather that there is this gate in Jerusalem, and this gate of Jerusalem was often referred to as the eye of a needle. And so uh, this gate now, it was not a, a tall gate, it was kind of a short gate. And so what a camel must do is, it is possible for a camel to get through, but a camel must kind of almost bend its legs a little bit and, and really kind of work hard to get through there and eventually could get through there. It would be really hard, but not necessarily impossible. And so that's what I was taught. I was taught that I've heard it probably a dozen times or more. And, uh, but see, I had this uh, class at a seminary and we were talking about this exact thing. And, and the professor said, did you guys know that, the, yeah, if you go to Jerusalem, there is a gate that people refer to as the eye of a needle. So you can be like, oh, there it is. But that w- gate was not around in Jesus's day. It was added in the medieval times. And, and as well, just from a strictly um, interpretation standpoint, what, what is that really saying? Because if that's true, that Jesus is not talking about the eye of like a needle like this small, but he's talking about the eye of a needle being this tall, okay? If that's really true, if that's what Jesus is really talking about, then what's the implication? The implication is that it's not impossible, it's just hard, Okay, and is that what Jesus is really saying? Jesus is really saying that it's not impossible, it's just, it's just kind of difficult. No, what Jesus is saying in verse uh, 27, this is his point, that it is impossible. It's absolutely impossible for anybody, rich, poor, whoever. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And so really, just looking at that, now all of a sudden this analogy makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle, like the largest animal at the time. You see, elephants were around back then, but they really weren't in Israel, okay? They were like in Africa and India and places of that nature. Um, I think even China, but they were not around in Israel. And so the camel was the largest animal that was around. And then the eye of a needle would be the smallest opening, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is he's taking the, it's hyperbolic. He's taking the largest animal, the smallest opening, not a six foot gate, okay, but a largest animal, smallest opening. And he's saying with man, like on your own, it is impossible to inherit eternal life. It is impossible to get to heaven on your own. But with God, all things are possible. That's his point that he's making here. Okay, so let's pause here for just one second. And I have a question. So let's, let's find out what this question is and I will do my best to answer. Here we go. Though eternal is a gift from God, so maybe eternal life, I'm going to add that. Though eternal life is a gift from God, Don't we have to believe Christ is our Savior to enter heaven and receive eternal life? If we don't believe this, we don't enter it, do we? Absolutely, yes. So great question. And uh, again, this is what I love about questions is that it gives us a chance to talk about it. It gives us a chance to clarify. So the question is that um, 
even though that eternal life is a gift, we still have to receive it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so the point that I, was, that I was trying to make was just that on our own, we can't do enough to earn it by ourselves, that it's only a gift from God. But absolutely, we have to receive the gift. We have to be willing to, uh, to receive it. And we do have a choice. We have the ability to reject it. Whenever God is giving us this free gift of eternal life, we absolutely have the ability to say, nah, no thanks, I'm good on my own. And by the way, people do that all the time. How foolish that is, but, but how often people do that as well. And so, yeah, absolutely. So we have to receive that, which means that we have to uh, proclaim our faith in Jesus and that as well that um, we're getting baptized and we're receiving the Holy Spirit. We're being adopted into God's family. Yeah, so, so you're right. We have to proclaim that. We have to believe. And it's, uh, it's what Ephesians 2.8 says, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. So it's by grace, so what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we receive that grace through faith in Jesus. So it's through belief. Yeah, good question, good question. So as well, one of the things that Jesus mentioned in Mark uh, last week was this whole sense of, of what good is it to, to, to do something really great on earth but then lose your soul for all of eternity. I mean, after all, think about how long our time is here on earth. It's what, an extra 80 years at max for some of us, 90 years for some of us kids, right? 100 years. But, but how long is eternity? It is forever, right? And, and so the thought that, that you're going to live it up in this world, but then, but then lose your salvation, just how foolish that is. And, and really, that's what this guy did here was he was looking at his life, his stuff, and he thought to himself, I cannot possibly give this up. And how foolish that is, right? How foolish that is. So then we find this in verse uh, 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. <laughs> so again, these, uh, these disciples, man, they just love bragging about themselves, okay? So, well, Jesus, look at us. We've left everything. We followed you. Patting themselves on the back. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And so um, Jesus here is even calling us that in order to be his disciple, we must be willing to give up everything, including family, which is weird because especially in America, we are so family-oriented, so family-centric. Um, and really, the nuclear family is a great thing. It's something that's instituted by God. But Jesus here is saying that you've got to be willing to even leave your family, to leave your mother, to leave, to leave your daughter, to leave your house. You have to be willing to do that, to be his disciple. And what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that, hey, here's what everyone should go do tonight, pack up your bags and leave your family? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying you must be willing to. 
Um, and, and really what he's saying here is to, to be Jesus' disciple, that we must be willing to give up everything. I mean, we must be willing to give up stuff. We must be willing to give up relationships. It really is kind of going back to the first commandment, to put God first in our life. And so to be Jesus' disciple, to be Jesus' follower, that there can't be anything in the way between us and him, that we have to be willing to give everything up. So then in verse 32, it says this. It moves on a little bit. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed there, those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So again, Jesus is predicting his death and his resurrection. Now this is the third time that he's explicitly stated it to the disciples. Uh, At the time, the disciples must have been very confused by this. And really, it wasn't until after the resurrection that they got it. Have you noticed that? Uh, Peter, before the resurrection, denying Jesus. Jesus who? I don't know the man. After the resurrection, empowered with the Holy Spirit, he will boldly proclaim Jesus, his death and resurrection, in front of thousands. Have you noticed that? And, And so that's what these guys, they're constantly bickering about who's the greatest. And they're... They're always thinking about Jesus establishing this earthly kingdom. And so when Jesus is telling them, at first they must have been really confused. And I don't think they fully grasped the meaning of it until after all of this has happened. And then they were looking back and they said, duh, duh. Jesus even said it multiple times. All right. So speaking of them bickering, we'll close with this last story here. And this is in verse 35. And James and John the sons of Zebedee came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay. Verse 36, And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Okay, so <laughs> they're constantly bickering who's the greatest, and now they've kind of pulled Jesus aside a little bit, and they're trying to work out some sort of deal with Jesus. Okay, okay. So you just said how you're not going to fight the Romans and how you're not going to be victorious over the Romans, how the Romans are actually going to kill you rather than you kill them. But really, we know that you're going to establish victory over the Romans. That's kind of what they do. Totally miss the point. And again, now they're just going to bicker and argue over who's the greatest. And so, so what they want is they say, hey, we just want one of us. I mean, dealer's choice here, you pick. We want one of us to be at your right hand and one to be at your second hand. See, whenever you had a throne, you had the right hand and you had this, the left hand. Uh, the right hand was the greatest position and uh, the Uh, Left hand was the second greatest position. And so that's what they're asking. They're asking Jesus for them to be promoted as number one and number two in charge of the kingdom. 
These guys, I swear. All right, verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And so Jesus here, of course, is referencing his death and his crucifixion and his suffering. The cup that he drinks of is referencing during Passover. There is always the cup that is poured. It's a a fifth cup of wine that is poured that uh, represents God's wrath. And this comes from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah talks about how there's, uh, uh, God is going to pour his cup on his people, pour his wrath on his people. And so, so they, they pour a cup and, and they, during the uh, Passover, and they just set it aside and no one drinks from it. And so whenever Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is saying, Father, take this cup from me. That's what he's referencing. He's referencing the cup of wrath. His, in other words, his suffering, his crucifixion that he is about to unfold here. And, and so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, are you going to drink from the same cup that I'm going to? Meaning the cup of wrath. Are you going to, do you want to be crucified? Do you want to suffer? Is, is that really what you want? And this baptism that he talks about here, uh, it's interesting. I had to uh, look this one up a little bit, but I guess that uh, the early martyrs, so those who uh, were killed for their faith early on, talked about how it was a baptism of blood. And so again, referencing suffering, rep- referencing uh, persecution here. And then in verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. <laughs> Jeez, these guys. Missing the point, it's like completely over their head. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with baptism, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And actually, he is prophesying how they are going to be persecuted. And how all of the disciples, is really interesting, if you were here a few weeks ago, we played this video. And it showed how all of the disciples, uh, except for, for John, he he basically died um, suffering in jail. And so, so that was like the least, okay? But everyone else was, was martyred. Uh, we even had, for example, Peter was crucified upside down, things like that, right? And so Jesus is actually foretelling their, their suffering and their persecution. But then in verse 40, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for... Or, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So when Jesus, and we believe that he is sitting on the throne of God right now, and that he sits where? At the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so who's on the left? It's God the Father. And so the thought of, of Jesus' throne is not one to give away, not to these disciples. It's not his to give. So then in verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Yeah, so you guys were trying your little power play. They don't like that. Then in verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
uh, talking, of course, about whenever he washes the feet of his disciples, he says this as well. But even for him to lay down his life, to serve us, to offer his life as a ransom for us. And that's the point of, of all of this. And so, so that's what Jesus gives to his disciples. And so, uh, so we'll actually stop there and then we'll come back next week at verse 46. So with that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. And dear Jesus, we indeed thank you for giving us this book of Mark where, where it's got so many powerful teachings about divorce and about children and um, about uh, a rich young ruler who just, who just couldn't do it, who just couldn't give up the one thing that was preventing his um, ability to follow you. And so, so God, indeed, we pray, Lord, that we can indeed look at our lives and can ask that question, is there anything that's holding us back? And, and Lord, if there is, that we can be able to let go of that and be able to give it up for your sake and for your gospel. And so pray, Lord, that uh, we can uh, indeed have a good rest of our night and the rest of Father's Day to celebrate that and that we can apply these things that we talked about. And all this we pray. Amen.